So our scripture reading today is we continue in the book of Luke. It's from Luke chapter 18. Uh, we are beginning in verse 15 and we'll read through verse 30. If you're using the black Bibles that are provided, that's on page 1043. And uh, I invite you, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So in some ways, these seem like very random, unrelated passages. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, well, so he put them together because it would be a really short sermon to preach on the first one, and then maybe a normal sermon to preach on the second, so he'll just preach a moderately long sermon to preach on both of them, which is true no matter how much of the passage we would have before us. But I think they're more connected to each other than... Uh, than, than they seem, and I think they're, they're much more connected to the surrounding passages and especially the things that we've read so far in going through Luke. And so uh, there's just a simple kind of outline we'll sort of follow, receiving the kingdom and earning the kingdom and the impossibility 
or the impossibleness of the kingdom. And so, I think though before we get into what Jesus teaches about the kingdom with children, I think it's important for us to at least uh, notice the approachableness, the approachability of Jesus. Uh, These parents, it's not just children they're bringing. Luke says there's infants. These parents, there's something about Jesus, either in his reputation or in his demeanor, that is very welcoming to these parents, probably both his reputation and his demeanor. There is a sense that they just get that Jesus is approachable, that they, they could do this, that there's nothing, there's nothing about Jesus that says, oh, this is inappropriate, or, oh, he's, a, he's above this, he's above them. Jesus, Jesus is for children and infants. He says, don't hinder them. So there is a real sense in which Jesus is saying, hey, don't keep your children from me. Jesus is very approachable, not just by parents of children, but by children themselves. Now this is, I'm saying this and you are thinking, well, duh. Like, Some of you are thinking even perhaps, isn't Jesus specifically for children? I mean, isn't isn't that the major reason we have Jesus is for children? It's good Sunday school material. I mean, what would we do without without, well, how would we do Sunday school without Jesus? And so, but you have to remember, like, our sentimental view of children is not the first century's view of children. Like we don't we have this sense that you know they're cute and they're innocent and they're just, you know, they're they're happy go lucky. They're maybe they're a little naive, but it's you know it's attractive to us the naivete of children. That's not how the first century would ever describe children. Uh, In the first century, children were weak, non-contributing, just parasites on your household. They take, and they take, and they take. And it is years before they have anything to contribute. Now, the thing is, these things are still true today. It's just that we also think they're cute and cuddly and and we like them. But, I mean, in the first century, children and and even women, like their, their sense of value came directly from the head of the house. Like the only value they had was in their connection to the head of the household. And so there is a weakness, uh, there's inability 
in the views of first century of children. Like they just, they have nothing to contribute. And so the disciples aren't being odd. They're simply reflecting the value system of their day and age when they are rebuking the parents and telling them, stop bothering Jesus with your children. Like, in one sense, like, they, children, children add nothing to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, there's nothing that can be gained by Jesus by blessing these children. And in fact, it seems the more he blesses them, the more children show up. And so it's just hindering his work even more. And uh, they, you know, are they focused on ministry? Are they focused on uh, Jesus's need for rest? Are they focused on their own sort of selfish desire to be with Jesus and not be surrounded by children? We don't know for sure. Maybe it's some combination of all of those. But their attitude reflects the attitude of the world. Children, at most, should be seen. They should definitely not be heard. And they are a nuisance more than anything. But Jesus says no. Jesus says, let them come. He says, the kingdom belongs to such as these. And so how? How does the kingdom belong to such as these, to these, to childlikeness. And this is where I think the connection of this passage to the rest of the passages we've been reading comes into focus. Because although we've been reading about parables that Jesus told, we're reading about weakness. There's a widow. She has nothing to offer in seeking justice from an unjust judge. There's a tax collector who has no righteousness of his own as he comes to the temple and cries for mercy and for propitiation from God. I think sometimes we take this and we think, okay, so I need to be more childlike. And isn't it a little bit ironic when we turn Jesus' statement for to such belongs the, king, the kingdom of God. All who receive the kingdom must receive it like a little child. And so we turn this into, oh, I need to be more innocent. I need to be more trusting. I need to be more transparent. I need to be more humble. I need to be more open to the future. I need to be more receptive. And do you hear what we do then? Like, okay, got it. So I got to do this and 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 do this. And then, then I get in. And Jesus' whole point has been, no. No, you receive the kingdom. Just like a child receives and has nothing to contribute back, you receive the kingdom of God. Just like the tax collector who can only cry out for mercy. It's not mercy that he deserves, it's mercy that he needs. And it's by mercy that he is justified. He goes home accepted by God. The widow brings nothing to the table in her cry and her plea for justice. The whole point in these past few accounts, and including this, is that 
The kingdom of God is for the hopeless and the helpless. And this is the image of the children, a widow, a tax collector, and now infants. Most of us struggle with receiving the kingdom of God like children because, well, because we think that we can earn it still. We think that there's still things we could do to earn God's favor. And this is, this is what we see in this, this ruler. Now, did this, was this ruler watching and he has a question on his mind and so he begins to talk to Jesus? Or is this Luke putting these two passages together to kind of give you a, a picture of the opposites? So you've got children on the one hand and a wealthy ruler on the other hand. It's very possible because he's, he liked, Luke tells stories in couplets, like he tells things about, here's a tax collector and a Pharisee. Here's a widow and an unjust judge. Here's Lazarus and a rich man. Here's children. And here's a, a wealthy young man. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And maybe we've all been in Sunday school too long, and so we listen to that and we hear, oh, there it is. I hear what he said wrong. Did everyone hear that? Everyone hear that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But the thing is, like, is there something wrong with that question? I mean, at Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the response of the people is, brothers, what shall we do? And he tells them, well, you need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to baptize your babies. Anyway, that's in there, but that's a different story. Anyway, but in Acts 16, the, the, the prison guard, the jailer, the, the earthquake comes and, and Paul convinces all the prisoners, just stay put. And the jailer's about to kill himself because he thinks, my, my life is over. I've lost all the prisoners. I had one job. And Paul stops him from killing himself and says, listen, we're all here. Nobody's left. And the jailer falls on his knees in front of Paul and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The question's not wrong. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The question could be asked in a right way, but perhaps it's being asked in a wrong way. And so Jesus gets to the heart of it to see, well, let's, what do you mean by that? Jesus' response is strange. It is definitely not in any of your evangelism books on how to win people to Christ. So first, the man says, good teacher, what should I do? And Jesus immediately starts correcting him. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. I think sometimes people assume that it's only the, the weird reformed people of the 15th century and on that that's invented this thing called total depravity, that there's no such thing as a good person on earth. But the reality is, here is Jesus saying that there is no one good but God, and, and the Reformation did nothing but bring us back to Scripture. And Psalm 53, for example, The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. 
They do abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so Jesus recognizes just sort of a a flattering opening, good teacher. I think he's looking for something back in return. I call you a good teacher, you call me a good man, and we recognize the goodness in each other, and then we can move forward. But Jesus challenges him immediately. Why do you call me good? Some people read that or hear that, and they claim, well, see, here again, this is Jesus saying, I'm not God. Is that what Jesus is saying, though? Or perhaps Jesus is saying, you're right in calling me good. Do you know how right you are? You call me good. That may be true, but there's only one who is good, and that is God himself. But then if that's not strange enough, Jesus seems to be giving this guy a way to earn eternal life. He says, well, you know the commands. And so Jesus quotes from the, what we call the second table of the Ten Commandments, the portion of the Ten Commandments that has to do with how we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. He says, well, you know the commands. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man, he says, well, not only does the man think he's doing well here, but he considers that child's play. That's kid stuff. It's like, man, I've been doing that since I was a kid. That's no problem. I got no problems with that. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. He could argue with him. We've seen other places where Jesus helps us see, you know, adultery is not just about the things you do out there with your neighbor. Adultery is about the things you feel in your heart toward your neighbor. Lust and desire for someone who's not your spouse, that's adultery. You know, murder Can you honestly tell me, young man, that you've never despised another person, never felt anger toward another person, never felt hatred or contempt for another person? Stealing isn't just about only being having what's yours and not having what's not yours, but are you generous with what God has given you? Are you stealing justice from others, from the poor, from the needy? Do you give generously? Bearing false witness is just not about, it's not only about what you say in court, but do you speak honorably and favorably? Do you use your words to build others up or do you use your words to tear others down? Like Jesus doesn't go into any of this. Jesus circles around to the first command. He says, okay, well, how's, do you have any other gods 
before me? Is there something in your life that you look to for your value and for your worth that you say, this is the most important thing to me? Jesus says, let's look at your idols. What gives you value? What gives you worth? This man was wealthy, we're told. Jesus says, well, here's something you lack. Go and sell everything you have and distribute it to the poor. And you'll have eternal life. Come and follow me. And it says the man was sad because he was wealthy. He had put all of his hope and all of his value and all of his identity in his wealth. And what gives you hope and value and identity is your God. For this man, it was his wealth. And Jesus says this is not an anomaly. And so we come to the impossibility of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, listen, it is hard. It is difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you've heard it, but like in the 80s and 90s, it was popular to say, now the, the eye of the needle, have you heard this before, is a little, a little kind of small hole in the wall in Jerusalem. And when a camel came to that hole, he would have to unburden himself. And then he would have to get down on his knees and humble himself. And only then could he enter the eye of the needle. <laughs> There's no such gate. There's no such thing. Jesus is literally saying it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God. Everyone in this room should be concerned. Everyone in this nation should be concerned. We are wealthy. We are wealthy. And we very much like they, where our attitude toward children in the 21st century may be different from their attitude toward children in the first century, sadly, our attitude toward wealth has not evolved much from the first century. If you have wealth, you are blessed. If you do not, you are not. And so while we might not verbalize it as freely as the crowd did, we do immediately wonder, well, then who can be saved? I mean, if that's, if that's I mean, if you're not saying it's difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle... If you're saying that's, it's easier 
Well, I, I don't get it then. Who, who can be saved? If not the people that are obviously already blessed by you, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. He wants this young man to see it. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't go straight to nothing. It's impossible. He tries to walk him there on his own. Well, here are these commands. But the man's so blinded by his own abilities, by his own blessings. He's like, well, I've done that. He says, well, how about this? And now the man is sad. It's impossible for man. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. Only the omnipotent can breach the wall of impossibility. God alone can save not your righteousness or in reality your self-righteousness, not the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. He did not go home justified. The tax collector went home justified only because of God, not because of himself. It's not your record. Your nearly but not perfect record with the small smattering of idols. It's not your record. It is God. God justifies the ungodly. God receives the worthless, useless child. God gives eternal life to those who repent and believe. I don't think Peter's boasting. I think Peter's just pondering aloud. He's just realizing. He's like, you know what? Uh, we've left our houses and followed you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, no one who has left home or spouse or sibling or child for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So I will, let me open with, I don't know exactly what that means other than seems to be the opposite, so it can't actually mean what it sounds like it means. Like, hey, I want you to leave your wife to follow me. I want you to leave your parents to follow me. But he is saying that my relationship with you, you're, you're going to lose some relationships in following me. Some of you have. You're going to lose a relationship with a parent. You're going to lose a relationship with a sibling. They're going to blame it on how religious you've become. That it's really you, it's not them. And what does he mean? Like, is, this, is he saying, hey, if you lose your wife, I'll give you four more. You'll get that and more. So that's a weird promise especially for any oh, never mind that's just a weird promise is that what he's saying 
because he says in this life and eternal life to follow. But there is a there is in this life a gift of family that is stronger than blood. That you may lose some relationships, but you will gain, even in this life, fathers and mothers in the faith and brothers and sisters who will bear your burdens with you, who will walk alongside of you, who will be there with you. You will receive children in the faith and you will delight to watch them grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as they come to Christ and you get to rejoice when they come forward in faith of their own, not just because their parents have come and brought them consistently, but you will, you will receive so much more in this life even and in the world to come, eternal life. Eternal life is what God is offering to each one of us. And it is important for us to ask ourselves, like, what, like this young man, what is more important in my life than an eternal relationship with Jesus? What would I say, no, I can't walk away from that. Jesus is saying, you need to see your helplessness, see your lack of contribution to this equation. Come like a child and just receive the kingdom of God. Does the, does the tape of, you know, if I were a better Christian, I would be blank. Ever play out in your head? I think if I were more Christian, I would be this. So for, so for pastors, it plays out like this. If I, were, if I were a better Christian, I would I would be able to speak to and, and understand every subject. Like every theological question, I would I would understand that better. If I uh, if I were a if I were a better Christian, I'd be able to fix every problem that people come with. If I were a better Christian, I would be more available. In fact, always available for everyone that calls. Understand every subject, able to fix every problem, available at any moment. In other words, if I were a better Christian, I would be omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. If I were a better Christian, I'd be Jesus. Do you think God is calling you to be a better Christian, to be less weak, less needy? If I were a better Christian, I'd be less anxious. If I were a better 
Christian, I'd be less desperate. Because in a lot of these things, what we're saying is, if I were a better Christian, I would need Jesus less. Is that what God really wants for you? To need Jesus less? Or does God want us, does being a better Christian mean I'm more comfortable with my weakness, my neediness, my desperation? Because I guess when I see those things, I need to just trust God. I need to just come empty. Almost childlike. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you remind us throughout your word that when we are thirsty, we can come to you. Because no one will satisfy like you. That when we are weak, we can come to you because you are our strength. When we are afraid, we can come to you because you are our shield. And when we are lost, you come to us. Jesus, give us an understanding and a sense of our weakness and emptiness and helplessness and worthlessness that we might receive your kingdom. Jesus, rip the idols out of our hands that are taking your place, that are keeping us from coming to you. Help us to see the mercy that you've shown to us in taking on your Father's wrath for our sin. Not because we deserve it, but because we need it. Help us to come to you needy and empty so that you would fill us. In Jesus' name, amen.